Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. All right, we're in a series called Witness. This is what it looks like. Witness, uh, becoming a redemptive presence. We have been looking at cultural issues over the last several weeks, starting in October, um, identifying the way culture operates and moves, that we recognize culture, what we're swimming in as people, um, is bending us towards a particular direction, and it moves us towards self-focus, narcissism, consumerism, materialism, distraction, um, exhaustion, busyness. We see that the current of our culture is moving us in a way that might not represent the way of Jesus. So our attempt in this series is just to identify the various perspectives um, that we face and the worldviews that we live in, and trying to confront those and offer an alternative life um, this is what it means to be a redemptive presence. Rather than rejecting culture, avoiding culture, uh, we want to engage culture. We want to enter into it and bring a new, bring life and redeem it from within. That's kind of our hope. And this morning, I want to continue our series. I'm going to talk about something that we're very familiar with, but I, uh, I want to just jump in and ask the question. So um, how do we live as a redemptive presence in a culture that perpetuates an unhealthy relationship with money, possessions, and wealth. So I'm gonna talk about probably the most obvious thing. I wanna talk about money this morning. Um, But all I'm gonna do is make one point and then casually walk through four different pictures throughout the the scriptures. And this is the one point I wanna make today, that your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. That what you see in scripture, the entire scripture, from Old Testament to New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, what you see over and over again is this idea that your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. Jesus actually talks about money more than anything else other than the kingdom of God. He talks about the kingdom of God more than anything else. Second to the kingdom of God is money. Money. 17 of 39 parables are dealing with money and finances. Uh, uh, Jesus uh, 15, here's a couple of stats, actually. He'll talk about money more than anything else other than the kingdom of God. That's three times more than love, seven times more than prayer, more than heaven, more than hell, more than anything else you can think of. The scripture and Jesus' message has something to do with possessions and money. And um, he, there are 450 different Bible passages um, that talk about money. 15% of the entire Bible, 15% of the word, has to do with money. And there are over 2,200 references that deal with money. So this is a subject that we can't avoid and that God has a lot to say about. So we need to know that. So the point I wanna make, and I'm just gonna show you, is that your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and your possessions. You guys okay with that? I mean, we're not talking about your cell phone usage today, so that's okay, right? So let's talk about this subject. So let's go to Leviticus 19. I'm just gonna scroll through four different pictures. We're gonna have four different Topics. I want to show you the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want to show you this theme, and we'll, we'll go from there. So um, there's this one point in, the, in what you see is that God's blessing in the Old Testament, you see God's blessing in your life is connected to how you deal with those in your midst that have needs. Okay, so the theme um, in the Old Testament is his blessing. So think about God's blessing in your life. This relationship is somehow connected to you 
caring for people in your midst, around you that you come in contact with that have needs. Leviticus 19. So this is Old Testament law. It says, we've read this before. Let's just read it again. Um, We love Leviticus at this church. Verse nine. In fact, if you're new to faith, just start there. It's really helpful. When... When you reap the harvest, because this, this is going to make so much sense. Now, if you're new to church and I just said start there, this will totally apply. Ready? When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your fields or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time, for all of us that have vineyards, or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. So this is a law. And then it goes on, and we're more familiar with these laws. It says, uh, I am the Lord your God. It says, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name so, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbors. So you see in Leviticus 19 this, this idea that um, God, God brings these uh, re, not re, provisions, laws on how to integrate. So the Old Testament, the first five books is called the Torah, and it's the law. And throughout the law and the narrative of Genesis, you have 613 different commandments. 613. And the commandments are inclusive of your life. Laws and regulations for diet, for eating, for lending money, for sharing, for land, for harvest, for sleeping, for rest, for work. It's all inclusive because to the Jewish community, everything is spiritual. We've already made that point. But in Leviticus, we see this weird idea, and we've talked about it extensively here, um, that basically if you have land and you grow, if you harvest the land, you have to leave the edges for those that don't have land or will receive a harvest. Okay, so... The provision is for those that are in your midst that don't have enough. So if you have, share with those that don't have. This is written into the law of the Old Testament. And this is why the old, in the Old Testament you see that if God's blessed you with something like a vineyard or land property, share the gleanings, the, the edges of your property, the crumbs off your table with those that don't have a table of their own. That's, that's kind of the law here. But why? Why does he give us this, this command? Why is it here? Well, watch his, notice the reasoning. I want you to go to Deuteronomy real quick because this is fundamental to a mindset that's found in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 24. We're gonna do a biblical survey. Deuteronomy 24. Um, just If you're in Leviticus, just keep going to the right. Um, and it says this in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 24. <clears throat> do not, I realize on your, on your devices, like you have a device, it's just so much easier to find stuff, right? You just scroll, oh, there's Deuteronomy. But if you have a Bible, I heard one page flip over here. That was amazing. Bless you, my child. <laughs> verse, 20, uh, verse 17 of 24, listen to the reasoning. So here, here we see this idea of the fatherless. It says, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. And here's the reasoning. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. You see this? The reasoning, God's way of thinking, he creates these commandments. He says, okay, because you were once slaves and had no land or justice or hope or provision, but I, through my sovereignty and grace to you, freed you, praise the Lord. Um, I, I now think that all those beeps are prayer reminders. 
Because second service a couple weeks ago, that's what he said. My alarm's going off to pray for you, Darren. I was like, that, just let it go. You can do it. Praise Jesus. So it, God freed you from slavery and now you have freedom, gave you land when you didn't have land, gave you um, this field when you didn't have field. So in other words, God has blessed you with grace and in view of that blessing, in view of that grace, now extend that same grace and blessing to others that don't have it. Do you see it? God's blessing is fundamentally connected to how you care for those who have needs in your midst. So when we look at the Old Testament, we see this idea that whatever God has extended you, make sure that you extend that to other people. In the Old Testament, you see this idea of what we'll call grace, this extending, this, this favor, this, this, this thing. So how, how you manage your fields, your vineyards, your house, your car, your 401k, your savings account, your job, your relationships, how you manage those in your life is connected to your spiritual life. Are you with me? You see in the Old Testament? Do you see in the Old Testament? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, okay, point number two. Check this out. Uh, go to Luke chapter three. Point number two. Four, four different points. One point, four different pictures. Picture number two. Repentance. Repent. Repentance is connected to your money and, con- and possessions. Repentance is connected to your money and possessions. What? Say what? Luke chapter three. I love this passage. So the Old Testament, that was, we, we talked point number one, the whole Old Testament. You see this all throughout the Old Testament, this provision for caring for those in the midst. God's blessing is connected to the, how you care for others that have needs in your midst. Old Testament ends. And there's this, they're waiting for God to restore Israel. Okay, there's the temple was destroyed. Um, they came back, they rebuilt the temple, they re- rebuilt Jerusalem, and there's this longing for God to come back and, and make Israel what it was once again. And the, the Old Testament ends, and it doesn't happen. They're in spiritual exile. They build the temple, but God's presence isn't there. And so it ends, and in the end, in the, the last book of the Old Testament, there's this promise that there's a Messiah coming. And the Messiah, the Savior, the King, will restore Israel once and for all. He will make all the wrongs right again and bring justice and hope and healing and forgiveness of sins, all sorts of stuff. He's coming. And, and right before he comes, there, in the Old Testament, the last book, there's a messenger that will prepare the way for the Messiah. So the Old Testament ends, and guess what happens? Nothing for 400 years. Silence. 400 years of silence. And then you get to Luke, and it bursts onto the scene, there's this guy named John the Baptist. And he is the messenger that is the voice calling in the wilderness. He is preparing Israel for God's Messiah to come once and for all and to redeem everything once and for all. All rights, all wrongs will be made right. All injustice, will be, you'll experience justice. Those that are hungry will be fed. The, the lion will sleep with the lamb. There's peace and shalom, restoration. What are we gonna do? God's gonna come. We gotta prepare for this. So this is the story of how the messenger calls people to prepare for the Messiah after 400 years of silence. Verse seven of Luke three, this is John preaching to the crowds. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, great name. Hey, good morning, brood of vipers. Welcome to the garden. (laughs) 
who, and listen to what he says. So he's in the wilderness and there's a big crowd and he's like, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Who told you about me? He's got, people are coming and they're getting baptized. And he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And that word repentance, it's a, if, even if you're not Christian or you haven't been to church, you've heard that word before. You've seen it on signs. You usually say, repent or you're going to go to hell. And it's not, that's an unhelpful image, right? Um, it's not very inspiring at all. Because that, that's not actually what Jesus taught. And even in this message, which is quite fierce, which you'll, we'll read in just a second, uh, repentance in Greek means to change one's mind. And, and the idea is you're, you're given this new information, and in view of this new information, you, you come up, you have a different way of thinking in light of that. Does that sound condemning? No, so, or, or in Hebrew context, it's to change direction. So you're walking down this path, and repentance is not, I'm going to do a 180 degree shift. Whoever does, it's, it's literally like you just think, okay, new information, new ideas, new awareness, new understanding of who I am because of this new information. I need to change the way I'm living, change directions in Hebrew. So repentance has this idea that we're all on this journey. And along the way, there will be moments where we are enlightened because of information, because the spirit comes and wakes us up, because somebody teaches us something or because we read something. And all of a sudden, because of that, we have to shift the way we think. We have to shift the way we live. That's repentance. Are you with me? Is that helpful? Is that redemptive? So when I say repent, I'm asking you to Think in view of this new information. How do you change the course of your life? How do you think differently about how you were thinking about something before in view of this new information? Is that helpful? Okay, there we go. So he says repent and produce fruit. So live your life in view of repentance. And, uh, and, and then he goes on. He says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. Okay, so basically, the Jewish community that, were, that around the first century that John is preaching to believed that, well, they have a, basically, we're all good because we're in the lineage of Abraham. So Abraham, we're Jewish, and we have this relationship with God because of our, our, our history, because of our past and tradition and our lineage. And, and because of that, we're all good. We don't need to live a life in view of being treasured possessions and sacred people, holy, set apart for the nations. So he's calling out the people of God. And he says, well, hey, God can turn these rocks into the children of Abraham. So get your life together. Your life should reflect the fact that you are a son or a daughter of Abraham. This is Old Testament. He's the last Old Testament prophet. And then he goes on. This is, a, this is what I mean by like a crazy message. The ax is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire. This is where people get the idea of hell and fire. But this is apocalyptic. It's Old Testament prophetic. It's imagery. And the idea is think of a, a, someone with an ax at a tree that's not, not producing fruit that's dead. It's there. It's going to be chopped down. You, you got to produce fruit. So it's urgent. You got to do something. We have to repent. The Messiah is coming. And then they said, okay, okay, John, what are we supposed to do? John answered, check this out. What does repentance look like as we prepare for the Messiah? What is John's message? Anyone who has two shirts, share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors, corrupted officials that were um, selected by the Romans to tax and collect taxes from the Jewish community. The Jewish community in the first century, check this out, 
90% of them in ancient first century Palestine were poor and lived in poverty. 10% were the ruling class. They were taxed so heavily that some scholars believe that two-thirds to three-quarters of their income was taxed by the Romans and by the ruling elite in Jerusalem who had temple tax and they had all sorts of taxes that were connected to Israel. Um, And so a person was literally barely getting by and getting taxed over and above what they should be getting taxed. And tax collectors took money on top of it because they had military force to collect the taxes. So tax collectors come, what should we do to repent? And he simply says, "Uh, don't collect any more than you are required to. Don't collect any more money than you're required to. Then then some soldiers ask him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So think about how profound this is. This is the messenger. This is recorded in the scriptures as the way John the Baptist prepares for the Messiah. He says, repent after 400 years of silence. Okay, what does that look like? And he says, okay, here's how you're gonna prepare. Everyone should share clothes and food with the poor. Tax collectors, hey, don't pocket extra money. And soldiers, just be content with what you have and don't extort money. Repent. I think it's so much easier for us to separate the spiritual and the material, right? Oh God, I'm coming to you. I wanna repent. I'll give you my prayer life. I'll give you my attitude towards my wife. I'll give you my Bible reading. I'll give you Sunday mornings every week and a small percentage of my income. That's the spiritual side. The rest is just off limits. But what God does is brings them together. How do we prepare for the long-awaited Messiah? Sharing with the poor. Being content with what we have. Not extorting. Not doing, not using money falsely. Why? Because our spiritual lives are directly connected to how we manage money and possessions. Are you with me? Okay, point number three. Picture number three. Uh, go to Matthew chapter six. Are we doing good? We're doing good. I'm, I'm feeling alive. Feeling alive. I did ask, uh, my friend sent me a picture of this Long Beach LB with a halo on it. And I'm like, dude, I want a hat. You gotta make me a hat. So he's like, I'll make you a hat. Thank you so much, bro. Makes 10 hats. And I'm like, I gotta share this. I gotta give this away. I have one. What if I gave nine away, right? And Alec, my wife goes, hey, um, why, don't we, why don't we do a raffle and pay for the youth? I'm like, that's a great idea. And then, I, and she's like, you're gonna give your hat too. I'm like, heck no, that's my hat. Ah, I'm being convicted. God's convicted me. Because then I read this, Matthew 6, ready for this? We've heard this so many times. Uh, point number three, Jesus has competition. Here we go, 6 verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we've heard this passage before, treasuring. Uh, humans treasure things. It's like treasure to treasure something or something that's a treasure is simply to place value or worth in something. Okay, so we do this all the time. Treasure is something that takes energy, 
mental focus, emotional capacity. It's our stuff. We have things that we value. And it could be your cell phone. It could be your relationships, your kids. It could be your bank account. It could be your boat, your house. These are all treasures that we have. And we all have various things. And they look different for every single person. Like if you go, I actually have a safe at my house. It's a tiny safe. It's like, like the basic safe that you get. I've had it since I was a kid. And the, the key is actually attached to it. So like it's connected. So if you found the safe, you, you can steal my valuables. And it's, it's true. I don't have very much stuff in there. Like what's in there? Like my marriage certificate, our birth certificates, like our passports, some random collection stuff from trips that I've been on and um, letters from Alex when we started dating. And, but in there, there's this rock. And it, it, there's absolutely nothing significant about the rock. It, it's this reddish rock that's falling apart. Um, but I treasure this rock. I, this rock is, is more than a rock to me. Um, because my grandpa died 12 years ago of cancer, 14 years ago. And um, the day he was, his body was riddled with cancer. And the day before he died, the doctors couldn't believe he was actually out of bed. He got out of bed, walked outside, picked up three rocks, one for my brothers and uh, my two brothers and I. And that was kind of his last moment of life. Um, and, and his last moment of life was to think of a way that I could remember him, which um, I look at that rock and it's way more than a rock that's falling apart. So it is stored in a safe in my house because I treasure that. Now that's an example of how we treasure things. Now Jesus is not saying don't treasure things. He's not even saying don't, he doesn't even say do not store up. He says he commands us to store up treasures, but treasures that last for eternity. Treasures that last for eternity. That's the key here. Are you spending your resources, your energy, your life, valuing the things that will keep on going into the age, of, age to come? Or are you spending it on things that will pass, move out, decay, that you can't take with you? So when Jesus talks about money, when he talks about possessions, it's not the amount of possessions that matter. It's your attitude towards the possessions that matter. So, I was asking my wife last night, I was, before I went to bed, I was like, do you have any stories like, that you can tell about ways that you've treasured something that was not something you should treasure? And then maybe this is helpful. Do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? Do you know the difference? So let me give you an example of my, of, of my wife's stuff owning her. She gave me permission to share this. Okay, so um, at the beginning of this year, we had uh, Safe Families. We, we, we do Safe Families. We haven't done it in a while. But we hosted two girls. One was 11. And um, we'll call her Christina uh, for the story. And Christina was an amazing one, young girl. She'd been in the foster system most of her life. She was incredible passionate, young, vibrant personality. And she came alive at our house. I remember I was like playing baseball with her and she literally said to me, I, I've never seen a dad play before. Uh, just the, the stories that week were, were the most profound thing. Do safe families, be a part of safe families. Um, and one, she, one time she found Alex's closet and this is before we pursued minimalism. So Alex's closet <laughs> just, stack my section here her section going over here no it wasn't it wasn't that big but basically you can imagine and she would tell you boxes and shoes and everything you can imagine and so she was uh, christina was playing dress up and she never had an older sister was bounced around houses all the time and she just came she was just wanting to play dress up so alex i remember walking in and alex was like nervous like she's in her closet 
Because remember, there's strange mystical connections to, that we have to our stuff. Like there's this strange mystical connection we have to all of our possessions. And so here she is going through, putting on stuff, and Alex is like, huh, ha, he, huh, okay, be careful, oh, oh. Like, okay, okay, you know? And then she found, Alex was given this gift of, I had to write, I had to write it down. I like text her, what was it? Um, she was given this gift of tan suede booties. Are those, is that like the formal... Tan suede, boot, tan suede boots? Like, okay, basically, I don't know what booties are, but tan suede <laughs> booties, okay? Not like booty, but like booties. <laughs> oh, so they were brand new. They were a gift given to her. They were very expensive, and she tried them on, and she loved them. And she was like, that was the thing. And then she goes, hey, Alex, can I take these to school tomorrow? Immediately, oh, no, you can't. They're too nice, blah, blah, blah. Alex woke up the next day feeling convicted because she felt owned by her tan suede booties. <laughs> and so she's like, hey, I want you to wear these to school. And she let her 11-year-old take off in her shoes. But that's an example, just one tiny tan suede booties that Alex made. She told me, I probably wore them three times total since, a year ago. And we do this all the time. That's when we, we have value and worth in something that's not gonna last. So do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? Because when I think about material possessions, you know what they do for us? They, Jesus confronts them as his greatest threat and competition to total discipleship. Because material possessions is unlike any other false god. Material possessions provide security, comfort, meaning, significance, status, I wasn't counting, but I should count, identity, purpose, happiness, pleasure. If you look at that list, and if that's where you find any sort of comfort, security, meaning, purpose, identity, any of those things outside of Jesus, that's an idol. And because material possessions provides and wealth provides that much stuff in your soul, that's why Jesus says you can't serve both God God and money because of that type of threat. Because he says, where your treasure is, underneath the, the suede shoes, underneath the computer device, underneath your car, your, your 401k, underneath that, that's where your heart is. It's not where your heart is, then your treasures will follow. It's the other way around. You wanna know where your heart is going, well, in order to get there, you can just look at the bank account, the, the income, the, the jean jacket, the hat, the clothes, whatever. Look at all that stuff, and then underneath, then you can find the heart that's after God, right? You with me? Why? Because your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. I love this story. There's a great book by Randy Alcorn, called The Treasuring Principle. He says this, once a distraught man rode his horse up to John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, who is a, he, I'm a, he's a hero of mine, shouting, Mr. Wesley, something terrible happened. Your house burned to the ground. Wesley weighed the news, then calmly replied, no, the Lord's house burned down to the ground. That means one less responsibility for me. <laughs> Wesley's reaction, he says, wasn't denial. Rather, it was a bold affirmation of reality. God is the owner of all things, and we are simply his stewards. 
Your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your money and possessions. Let me do one more and then we'll close. Sound good? Uh, Point number four, salvation is connected to your money and possessions. Salvation is connected to your money and possessions. Luke Luke chapter 19, verse one. Uh, Luke 19, verse one. says this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So stop right there real quick. As we read this, it's really important. Anytime I teach teachers how to preach, I always say, when something's mentioned, pay attention to it. So where is Jericho in relation to Jerusalem? Where was Jesus right before he went to Jericho? So it says, as he's passing through, Jericho is 17 miles away from Jerusalem. And Jericho was a, the second largest city outside of Jerusalem. It was where all the wealthy people lived. Wealthy community lived outside of the walls of Jerusalem, most of them, during this time. It had a natural hot spring. It was like the vacation town. It was the Newport Beach or the Laguna Beach of Southern California. Is that good? That's good. So Laguna Beach of Southern California. So as Jesus was passing through Laguna Beach, um, uh, that, that would have radical implications for the first century. They would know that most of the wealthy had their beach houses there, basically. They had their second homes there. This is where that the, the wealthy stayed outside of Jerusalem. So, uh, so he's passing through. And check this out. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. I love that. He's named tax collector, wealthy, but he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed on a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus, by the way, Real quick, I, I just, this story, I get caught up in this. The fig tree was the symbol for the, the nation of Israel. In another story, Jesus goes into Jerusalem and there's no fruit on the fig tree, so he curses it. It's like burning the flag of Israel. And who's literally hanging like fruit on the symbol of the nation of Israel? Zacchaeus. Do you see the image now? That's pretty amazing, right? That's why these details are in here because it paints this beautiful picture. You have, you have this outcast chief tax collector hanging as a f- symbol of fruit on this fig tree. Okay, so we talked about paying attention. He's, you gotta pay attention to that. Um, Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot and looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. So they're pissed. They're angry. They're, they can't believe it. So what's going on? First century context. Jesus is seen as a Jewish rabbi, a prophet, a teacher. And so he represents a way of life. The Torah was the way of life. His, what, whatever he does in life, how he lives his life, has radical implications for his view of scripture, Torah, where you place him. People are trying to figure out where does Jesus fit on the scale of religious things. He's preaching about the kingdom of God in the first century where 90% of those in first century Palestine were poor and oppressed by a system of power that taxed them heavily. And so you have a chief tax collector who's conspiring with Roman officials to uh, collect money from people that don't have enough money to get by anyways. So tax collectors were despised. They were hated. In the first century, we have recordings that they were excommunicated from fellowship. They were excommunicated from temple. 
They couldn't, their families became excommunicated unless they publicly shamed the decision of the tax collector conspiring with Rome to collect money. Uh, to be associated with the tax collector was to be marked as unclean and part of that excommunication process. You, today, uh, a Jewish, an Orthodox Jew will not have table fellowship with just anyone. Because to a first century Jew and to an Orthodox Jew, table fellowship means something more than a Facebook like. Table fellowship implies you embrace the person you're eating with completely. You accept them as they are. You extend shalom and peace, harmony, right relationship. So as Jesus goes into his house, all of this baggage is there. That he is, he is embracing a tax collector. He's embracing someone that's part of the system that's oppressing us. The worst kind of people. He's, he's going to extend shalom and forgiveness. So what does the, the first century audience think? He's in on it. Jesus is in on this, the system that's oppressing us. Are you with me? You guys with me? Okay. The story goes on. They're upset. What's going on? He's hanging out with the sinner. Zacchaeus stood up in the dinner. And he said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And listen to what Jesus says. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. The only time we know for certain in scripture that salvation occurred is this story. The only time we know that there was a, a, a moment where this the message of Jesus, salvation has, there was a transaction of some, some course, of some course, something happened that Jesus it says, salvation has come to your home, is this passage. We don't know if he confessed a, a list of beliefs. We don't know if he said the sinner's prayer. We don't know if he repented all of his wicked ways. We don't know anything other than a guy has a meal with Jesus and somehow in the midst of the meal he says, Half of my stuff has to go. Literally, he meets Jesus and he rearranges his house. The second toaster, I gotta give that away. <laughs> because something about Jesus rearranges his life. And salvation is connected to his response in his rearranging of furniture, things, and possessions. It doesn't mean he earned salvation by doing this at all. But something about this meal, this encounter with God that Zacchaeus has, the worst kinds of sinners, something that happened at the dinner table causes Zacchaeus to repent. And the life of God comes crashing in and all of a sudden, the things in his life that were once keeping him from salvation, the life that was truly life, the things that protected him, that brought him comfort, meaning and significant, significance no longer brought him comfort, significance, and meaning or purpose because he had dined with the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Something happens. Jesus changes Zacchaeus's relationship with money and possessions. Something about Jesus changes Zacchaeus's relationship with money and possessions. And this is what happens when somebody meets Jesus for the, for the first time or really somebody who really meets the real Jesus. Because your whole life becomes realigned to the kingdom of God. And that's what discipleship is about. Jesus doesn't want your prayer life, just your prayer life. He 
He wants your pocketbooks, your wallets. He wants your screen time. He wants your dating life. He wants every aspect of your soul, your relationships. It gets rearranged in a relationship with, with Jesus. When I got married, my whole life changed, whether I knew it or not. Because when you're single living with three other dudes and then move into an apartment with one girl for the first time, you're bound to hit some roadblocks along the way, especially when you're 21 and 22, which means you don't know anything, but you think you know everything. I mean, I've shared this story. Everything changed from the brand of toilet paper to how it's put on the roll to I started eating vegetables when I got married. That was a gift from the Lord. I slept in the bed with a, a person. Like, you, you, things change, and that's what happens when you get married. You, your life, you, date nights change, your goals change, your finances change. You, re, you radically reorient your life around this relationship. When you, get, uh, when you become a parent, you get this new identity, you're a father or a mother, and you have this son or daughter, and you, lots of things change. Like, for example, you can do life on no sleep. All of a sudden, you realize that what you needed before, eight hours, now takes an hour and a half, broken up into tiny naps throughout the evening. <laughs> uh, but I think the most obvious change is so obvious, like your, your language changes. Like, well, well, go back to your schedule. Your schedule now revolves around nap times and feedings, which when did you ever think about feeding and naps? But then also your language. You have, all of a sudden, you have this robust vocabulary, like bumbo, burping, spit up, Bouncy seat, ergo, strollers, footies, swaddles, and butt paste become normal conversation over the dinner table. This is all what you have to look forward to. Um, but everything changes when you have a kid or you have a new relationship. And the same is true with Jesus. The same is true with Jesus. Your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your possessions and finances. God's not against you making lots of money. He's not against money at all. He is against money being your God. God wants to redefine your relationship with money and possessions through his relationship with you. You just gotta let him in. And this is the truth of why Jesus talks so much about money and possessions. You see, God doesn't want your money. God wants your freedom. And for Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus is his story of liberation and freedom. The whole point of the story is that when you learn to give your money and possessions away, we learn to give more and more of ourselves to God. So when we learn to give more of our money and possessions away, we actually become, we start giving more and more of ourselves back to God. Because the more we give to ourselves to God, the more we become truly ourselves. The more we give our, ourselves to God, the more we become fully ourselves. And so brothers and sisters, as we prepare the way for the arrival of baby Jesus, the incarnation, Christmas season, the season that we celebrate, the story of God coming into the earth, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us in glory and grace and truth, we have to realize the significance of preparation and what preparation looks like. It's not being quiet just in front of your Christmas tree, meditating on a story and praying some prayers. It's rearranging your finances and possessions. It's re re rearranging your whole life with the kingdom of God because your spiritual life is directly connected to how you manage your possessions and finances, how you manage your money and possessions. So I wanna ask you this morning as we reflect and pray 
What does repentance look like for you? If God had to sit down, if Jesus came and sat down and had a meal with you this evening or this morning or this afternoon, if you met with Jesus, what would your response be at that meeting for him to say, salvation's come to this home? What's that thing in your life? What's that area that you've treasured more that owns you? As a way of discipline, yesterday, my wife does all the budgeting and finances. We've aligned it to our values. And I took all of her line items, which there's like 40 line items, from like the electric bill to the phone bill to dinner out, um, rent, tithe, all, I mean, all this stuff. And I put it in a pie chart, which I figured out how to use, which is great. Um, and I just looked at the percentage of income that went places. And I was, I was really stoked. I was stoked that there's a massive percentage that's tithe, massive, massive, massive percentage that's to our house. And, and I just looked and there's nothing off. But then I was like, God, show me what I'm missing. And I, I just calculated how much money I spent on coffee how much money I spent on pokey and Chipotle. <laughs> I, I, that's, I know that's like funny, right? Uh, yeah, but God just, just started inviting, if you want to be generous, if you want to keep, because I asked my wife, hey, can we give more of our income away in 2017 than we anticipate? And it's so tight right now. There's no way. We're trying to give more to Vision Builders and this. And she's like, you, got, you can't do both. And so for me, it, it, I had to readjust the conversation and, and basically say, what do I have to stop just for this year to enter into a greater season of generosity because it has to cost me something. It can't just be a line item. It, I, my life has to, and I don't know, I, I'm wrestling with this right now. I didn't come up with an answer because I like coffee <laughs> and I love pokey. And, and as cheeky and as cheesy as that sounds, that's, that might be the place where Jesus calls me to experience greater freedom. Not to legalize it, not to make a rule, not to come down, not to enjoy life, but there's this other thing he's calling me into that's about risk and stepping out. And I think it's gonna rearrange some of the things that I do in my everyday ordinary life. I just don't know it yet. So what is it for you? Shall we pray? Yeah, let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.